All right, church, good morning again. Take your Bible and go to Psalm chapter 8, if you will, please. Psalm chapter 8, Merry Christmas. About 20 years ago on Christmas Eve, uh, the famous nationally syndicated columnist George Will, maybe you've heard of that name, wrote a Christmas column entitled, The Happiest Holiday. And the column began like this. A sarcastic British skeptic of the late 19th century suggested that three words should be carved in stone over all church doors, important if true. Important if true. On Christmas Eve, it sometimes seems that Christians are supposed to celebrate Christmas as though they have agreed to forget what it means. There are several reasons why forgetting, actual or make-believe, is not altogether unfortunate. First, some people really have forgotten what Christmas means, or they never knew, or they never cared about Christmas's religious dimension, but still they can enjoy and benefit from the seasonal upsurge of non-sectarian goodwill. Second, many Americans are of faiths that assert that Christianity is mistaken about what occurred in Palestine 2,000 years ago or in the 33 years or so thereafter. Important, if true. I was studying in my office last week and then again in my home office, and I was searching for something new to say at Christmas. Now, you may not believe this, but after years of serving in this capacity, it can be difficult to find something fresh to say during the holiday season. You don't want to cover the same old ground. You don't want to say the same old things. Easter's a lot like that. Christmas and Easter are the church's two biggest, highest, holiest days. So as a minister, a teacher, you want to come up with something fresh. And so I was really struggling and have been for a couple of weeks. And I was praying and I started surfing the web, and I read article after article. I came across a lot of articles in the defense of Christ at Christmas. The defense of Christ at Christmas. And I thought to myself, good grief. Have we finally gotten to the point in America where Jesus Christ needs defending at Christmas time? Studies have shown that's exactly where we are. Skepticism is on the rise in America. Maybe he does need defending, even at Christmas time. And before you think, well, he may need defending out there, he may need defending on the television, he may need defending on the internet, but he doesn't need defending in here. Oh, I wouldn't be so sure. Studies have shown recently, in the last two years at least, that biblical illiteracy is climbing among churchgoers. Now, remember, whenever you read a study or a survey about churchgoers, we're not typically talking about people who have embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ. They attend every Sunday. They're growing in their faith walk. Uh, a churchgoer may be someone who only goes a handful of times a year. But in 2017, just two years ago, the Barna Group published a survey which revealed that among American churchgoers, 47% believe that absolute truth exists. That's less than half. That means if we were to divide this auditorium in half, according to this information, a survey of over 10,000 American churchgoers, half of you would believe that absolute truth does exist, 
and the other half would not. 32% believe that all religions are basically the same. Now, how many times have you heard me from this particular position say something like, that is one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity. That is one of the things that separates Christianity from Islam or Hinduism or the New Age movement. And yet 32% of American churchgoers believe that all religions are basically the same. That all religions are fundamentally equal. Look, all religions are peripherally similar but fundamentally opposite. Christianity stands opposed to Islam, opposed to Hinduism, opposed to the New Age movement, opposed to the Eastern, Eastern polytheistic theologies. 60% believe that good works can still get you in with God. Good works. You can be good enough to go to heaven just by being good. I love having conversations with people along these lines because the first question I ask is, well, how good is good enough? Do you get to decide how good is good enough? Do I get to decide for you? And yet, among American churchgoers, six of ten believe that you can still be good enough to get in good with God. And 42% believe we do not have an enemy. 42% believe that Satan is just a symbol for evil. Hmm. Maybe that British skeptic had a good point when he said, above every church door ought to be etched in stone the words important if true. But what if the things we say we believe, especially at Christmas time, are not true? What if they're not true? I mean, how can we be sure? Look, I get it. You may be sitting here today and you have your doubts. I understand that. There was a time in my life I had doubts, serious doubts. I also get that the holiday is much more enjoyable if we just focus on gift giving and family and eggnog. <laughs> but I think Jesus does need defending in 2019. I think perhaps we need to remind ourselves of what we really believe about Jesus and Christmas. Let's begin first with the observation that the Bible makes some rather astounding claims surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, what we believe about the birth of a king. You realize the Bible says that a virgin became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God impregnated a virgin, probably a 14 or 15-year-old virgin. Isaiah the prophet, 700 years before that actually happened said it would be done just that way. We also believe that a, the baby in her womb was the son of God. This was not just any child. This child was not going to grow up to be a great leader among men. We believe as followers of Jesus Christ, the Bible asserts a pretty astounding claim that the baby in Mary's womb was the son, the child of God. We also believe that God's providence sent Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem where the Christ child was born. Again, 800 years before that actually occurred, a prophet by the name of Micah said it would be so. Speaking of the prophets, prophets foretold these events hundreds of years before they actually happened. Church, are you aware that in the Old Testament alone, there are more than 2,000 prophecies that have been fulfilled? 2,000. 
330 or more revolve around the Christ child born in Bethlehem. Do you know that the Old Testament foretold that Jesus would not only be born in Bethlehem, but that Jesus would one day be betrayed by one of his own for 30 pieces of silver? The Old Testament said that. Hundreds of years prior, the Old Testament predicted how he would die. The brutality, the humiliation, his hands and his feet would be pierced long before anyone had ever heard of crucifixion. The Old Testament prophets pointed to the brutality of Jesus' death. He would not only be betrayed, he would not only suffer and die, but he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver and none of his bones would be broken on the cross. Again, hundreds of years prior to when the event actually occurred. The Bible also reveals that a star led the Magi from the east directly to Jesus. A star. Angels spoke to shepherds, lowly shepherds. God's messengers didn't go to kings, didn't go to dignitaries, but went to shepherds. An angel spoke to Joseph on three separate occasions. An angel spoke to the Magi, warning them not to return to Herod. And speaking of Herod, Herod was the one that slaughtered all those baby boys under the age of two. Even the slaughter of those baby boys by Herod fulfilled ancient prophecy 400 years earlier. Simeon met Jesus at the temple when Jesus was only eight days old. As was the custom, he was coming to be circumcised. And Simeon held him in his arms and predicted his death on the cross. Hmm. Those are some pretty astounding claims about Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you are an embracer of Christmas and all that it means, that means you believe every one of them. And then there are the names that he's given. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. We're talking about a baby here. Everlasting Father. Hard to look at a child as a father. Prince of Peace, Jesus, which comes from the Old Testament, Joshua, which means Savior or salvation, Emmanuel, which means God with us, Son of the Most High, and Christ the Lord. Hmm. Those aren't just any names. Those are astounding claims to the person of Jesus Christ. And then there are the things that he will accomplish, according to this book. He will save his people from their sins. He will reign from David's throne in Jerusalem. And his kingdom will never end. I submit to you that those are absolutely astounding claims if we think about them, which we rarely do, especially at this time of year. We'd rather sing Handel's Messiah than stop and think about what it's saying. We'd rather sing that famous hymn that we sang a moment ago, written by Charles Wesley. Hark the herald angels sing. Look at these words. Veiled in flesh, covered by skin, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king.
Back to where I began. If all of that is true, my goodness, is there anything more important? If all of that is true, is there anything more monumental, more meaningful in this life, more hopeful for the next life, more eternal, important, if true? Psalm chapter 8, beginning in in verse 4, brings us face to face with the reality of Christmas, face to face with the beauty of Christmas. When David wrote these beautiful words, beginning in verse 4, Psalm 8, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Now pause for a moment. Here we go. Pay attention. This is, again, one of the distinguishing characteristics of Christianity, especially as it grew out of ancient Judaism, because this was a brand new idea. This was a brand new thought in David's day. You see, the gods of the ancient Egyptians, the gods of the Babylonians, didn't care for man, weren't mindful of man. Mankind was created to serve the gods, to sacrifice for the gods. There was no affection in return. Even the gods during Jesus' day, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, they were gods to be placated. They were gods to be appeased. And yet David asks, what is, I, what is man? Who am I that you're mindful of me? You made them man a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Again, not anything like the ancient gods of Persia or Babylon or Greece. In this passage, we see both the glory and the tragedy of humankind. In these few verses, we see the best and the worst of man. David says we were created with glory and honor. We were crowned with perfection. We were crowned with glory. We were made in the image of God. And we were put in charge over everything that he had made. This was our time to shine. (laughs) Um, About eight or nine months from now, at the Summer Olympics, the world's Greatest athletes will all converge on Tokyo. And for two weeks, they'll run and swim and lift and fight and wrestle and jump. And whoever can do it the fastest or throw it the farthest or do it the most times or in the shortest amount of time will be crowned with glory and honor. They'll be given a a gold medal and their flag will rise in the arena and the national anthem of their nation will play. And for that moment, at least for that day, for that brief amount of time, they will be the greatest among us. But now, (laughs) we've all seen that records are set to be broken, that today's champion is tomorrow's fraud. It won't take long before one by one our heroes, once the greatest, once the fastest, once the strongest, they'll fall from their perch. When we win our medal... That's our version of glory and honor. But then the glory fades. The records are broken. Our heroes are replaced. David said, we were made for greatness. God created humans just a little bit lower than the angels. 
Not angels, but almost. That's us. That's you and me. Just a little down from the angels, but the angels fell and so did we. The evidence is all around us of our failure, isn't it? We see it every day. That's why the world is really not so great, even at Christmas time. That's why even when we experience the highest of highs, the highest of hopes, when we get a glimpse of what we can be, our goodness, the light that's within us, it's very short-lived, isn't it? There's another mass shooting right around the corner. There's more abuse of fellow man just around the bend. The white man hates the black man simply because he's black. The black man hates the white man simply because he's white. Jews have their enemies. Arabs have their enemies. Wars and fightings, corruption globally. There's something in us that's broken. We scratch our heads and we say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. How do you know that? Because like David, you know deep within you that we were created for greatness. But thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God made us for greatness. And yet, you don't have to read very far to find out that we made a total mess of things. We messed it up good. We had one shot at immortality, one shot of perfection, and we blew it. But thankfully, God's not finished with us yet. God's not finished with us yet. The story doesn't end there, thankfully. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. In the back of your New Testament, right after the little book of uh, Philemon, before you get to James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude and Revelation, there's a big book. It's called Hebrews. Go to chapter 2. In Hebrews chapter 2, the mystery is revealed. Before we read Hebrews 2, let me remind you of what we just read from Psalm chapter 8. Remember, David wrote, What is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them, or that you're willing to visit with them, or commune with them? Remember that. As if to say, why in the world would you want to bother with people like us? When you look around and you see all the brokenness in our families, when you see all the perversion and corruption in our government, when you see all the twisted lies and deceit, the web of falsehoods that we attempt to spin every day in order to get ahead of our neighbor, why in the world, God, would you even bother with people like us? You created a perfect environment for us, and we ruined Eden. We ruined it. We might as well have struck a match and burned it to the ground. You gave us another chance. But man became so evil that you wiped out everyone with a flood except for one family. And even that family was far from perfect. Why not just hit the delete button and wipe out humanity altogether? That's what David is asking. Who am I? Who are we that you even care? Why not admit that this was an experiment that just didn't work out? This was a good idea at first, but it all fell apart. Why not just start over again? David's question in Psalm 8, it points to the very heart of Christmas. It unpacks the mystery and the wonder of the holiday season. What is man 
that God should care about us even after we failed so miserably. Who am I? Who are you that God would come among us? It's right at that point that we see it. You see, when the writer of Hebrews was trying to convince his readers about the amazing, awesome wonder of our salvation, the greatness of the gift of God, what he did for us that we could never have done for ourselves, he quotes the words we read from David in Psalm 8, but this time he applies them to Jesus Christ. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 6. Verse 6, he's quoting David now. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. God, why do you care about a little baby that's born anywhere in the world? He's going to grow up to be just like the rest of us, the writer asks. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor. You put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, we don't see everything subject to us. We don't see everything in the world subject to man. Watch this. But we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now he's crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It is precisely at this point that Christmas speaks so loudly and so clearly to all of us. We were made for glory but the glory faded a long time ago. God gave us one rule to live by. And before you get mad at Adam and Eve, you and I would have done the same thing. God gave us one rule to live by, and we disobeyed, and then we died spiritually. We died on the inside. Then our bodies started dying on the outside. The cemetery started filling up. We turned to our own devices. We said, God, we don't need you in our lives. In fact, we don't need you at all. Just leave us alone. And now we wonder why the world is the way it is. Someone famous once said, we have met the enemy and he is us. But God said this, God said, I will not leave you alone. I won't do it. I will not leave you alone. I will not let you destroy yourself. I will not let you destroy each other. I will not let you destroy the world that I've made. I love you too much to leave you alone. So he kept fiddling with us and he kept pestering us. He gave us the law and what we do with it? We perverted it. We twisted it. He sent us the prophets. What do we do? We killed them. He wrote us letters. What do we do? We ignore them. He told us how to live. We said, who in the world are you to tell us what to do? We mocked the very God who made us. We mocked him. We broke his laws. We said we didn't need him. We made up our own little mini gods that we liked a whole lot more because they were so much like us. God had every reason to erase us all, but he didn't. In fact, he said, I love you too much to let you go. In fact, I'm coming down there once and for all, and I'm going to prove it to you. But even when Jesus came in Bethlehem, we didn't pay much attention. He was an anonymous little kid, a baby born in obscurity and silence. 
If someone told us there's something special about that child, we couldn't understand it. It seems strange to us. Wait, wait, wait. A virgin had a baby, and that baby is God? As we scratched our head. I mean, how could God visit us? So he became a baby. He grew up and he set an example. He poured out his love to all of us. He healed our illnesses. He taught us how to live. And what did we do? We crucified him. We murdered him. We killed him. That's the thanks we gave God for visiting us. Hmm. But after we killed him on Friday, guess what happened on Sunday? He rose from the dead. And you know what that said to humanity? It said, God was right all along. And we, we were wrong in every way. We were wrong about everything. You see, this is the greatest rescue mission in history. And only God could do something like that. Man, what a story. What a savior. C.S. Lewis wrote, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That means that God has done it all. He's done every bit of it. There's nothing left to do but believe and receive. So, what is Christmas? And if it's true, oh, how important is it? Have you believed? Have you received? I can't prove it to you, obviously. You're going to have to make up your own mind. But the facts are on my side. And I can promise you, and I can say without reservation, that I have bet my life, and many in this room have bet theirs as well, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Important, if true. You see, Christmas matters, not because family matters, not because gift-giving matters, not because goodwill matters. Christmas matters because truth matters. And the heart of the truth of Christmas is that God would not leave us alone. Christmas is about many things to us, but the important things are only three. Who we are, who God is, and how far he's willing to go for us. That is Christmas. And that, if true, is of utmost importance. Would you bow your heads? <clears throat> what a great time of the year to settle what you believe about Jesus Christ. You cannot end with a baby born in Bethlehem. You must fast forward to see a man dying on a cross because the first would never have occurred were the second not the original plan from God. So if you're here today, before we pray, and you would like to know more, if you have questions, if you're skeptical, I am encouraging you, use the communication card. Make sure we get your phone number, and I'll call you this week. Father, in a moment, we'll go outside, get in our cars, and head into town, possibly get something to eat, or maybe head straight home to eat with friends or family. And in the days to come, we'll worry about last-minute Christmas gifts and do we have enough wrapping paper and who's bringing the ham to Christmas dinner. 
God, I pray, I pray that you would remind each one of us that if the claims of Scripture regarding the Christ child in Bethlehem are true, that makes them incredibly important. Important enough that we ought to respond. Father, all these things I pray, knowing full well that I wouldn't even have an audience with you, my creator, were it not for a baby born in Bethlehem. For one veiled in flesh who was indeed the Godhead. God, may we live lives that truly, truly celebrate the true meaning of Christmas. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time. Merry Christmas.